You can open in your Bibles there to the end of Luke chapter 23. We're going to go into chapter 24 today. C.S. Lewis wrote in one of his essays, and I think it's a quote I've used before and will probably use again, but he says, one must keep on pointing out that Christianity is a statement which, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The one thing it cannot be is moderately important. If it's true, it's infinitely important. If it's not true, it's not important at all. The, the one thing Christianity cannot be is sort of, kind of, important. All right, that's my paraphrase. That's not Lewis. He's smarter than me. But uh, this, now, now this statement's true because Christianity rests on the claim that Jesus was put to death and literally, physically rose from the dead. And a claim like that, if true, is infinitely important. If Jesus was resurrected, then there is no question that He is the Son of God and that you should submit your life to Him. You should submit yourself to His Word, to His message, and to the message of the Gospel. But if false, it invalidates all of it. It invalidates all of it. The teaching, Jesus' claims to divinity, the significance of His death. Right? Paul said it this way in 1 Corinthians 15, 14, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and our faith is in vain. Or you might say our preaching is useless and so is your faith. So, as we finish chapter 3 here and we kind of dive into chapter 24, we would, we would do well to remind ourselves of the purpose that Luke set out with in the beginning. It was to write down relying on his investigation, including eyewitness accounts and testimony that were passed down to him. So he sets out to write an orderly account that we can have certainty. That we can have certainty. Being assured in our text that Jesus did indeed die and that he did indeed literally physically rise from the grave. And that's our main point this morning. You can be certain of the resurrection and therefore certain of the blessings of salvation. You can be certain of the resurrection and therefore certain of its blessings. So we begin there in chapter 23 in verse 50. Right? So in order to be a resurrection, there must be a, a real death. So our first point this morning, point number one, is you can be certain that Jesus truly died. You can be certain that Jesus truly died. Now the crucified person was oftentimes taken down and just kind of thrown into a common grave or at times even just kind of piled up there at Golgotha, the place of the skull, and they'd be exposed to the elements, exposed to animals who might come and tear apart the body, right? One Roman historian writing at this time said that victims of crucifixion were not even allowed to be buried. It was one last humiliation, because it was a humiliating thing to not have a proper burial. burial. But the Jewish people, right, they understood from, from the book of Deuteronomy that the law of God said that a person that was hung on a tree uh, should not be hung overnight. It's a, it, it's a curse, right? So the law of God said that a person should not remain there, and so they should be taken down and 
and buried. So instead of Jesus' body being thrown to the animals, left to the elements, we're told that his body is taken off that cross by a man named Joseph of Arimathea. He had the courage, our text says, to approach Pilate. And he takes it then upon himself to take Jesus' bloody, beaten, crucified, and stripped body and remove it from the cross. Now we're arguing here that, that Jesus, we can be certain that Jesus really, truly died. And I think we see that in a couple ways in our text. First, I, Pilate was not going to give permission for someone to take down the body of a person who has been condemned to death while assuming there's a chance this man is still alive. Particularly, he would not do this when this person that Joseph of Arimathea wants to take the body of, when that person was the center of a near riot, and that was the reason he was willing to turn him over to, to the will of the people, was that these people were about to riot. They want him put to death so bad, I think he's innocent, but I'm going to let them kill him to keep everything uh, settled here. The public trial of Jesus about caused a riot. And so Pilate is not likely then to let somebody take his body off the cross before he's dead. Also, this, this guy, Joseph, handled the body of Christ. And this was after the Roman centurion had pierced Jesus on, in the side, ensuring his death. So this matters, right? Because some have argued, and it's not super popular, but some have argued that Jesus was simply unconscious when he came down off that cross and kind of going into a cool tomb there, sort of revived his body and he was able somehow to come out of that tomb and, and go convince his disciples that he was actually resurrected from the dead. You know, it's like the, a movie where you're certain the protagonist is dead and then at the last minute he takes a breath and he's actually alive and he can go save the dead. That's one theory, but Luke's account makes it clear that Jesus was uh, literally and truly dead. And so Joseph takes the body of Christ, wraps him in a linen shroud, and lays him in a tomb that would have been kind of carved out of a, a rock wall. Now, there's another important detail in the text that I think, again, Luke it, it kind of slides in there to give us certainty about this this account of Jesus' resurrection. It's a tomb in which no one had ever been laid. Right, And that detail might sound weird to us Westerners who are used to putting a, a body in a coffin and taking it to a field and burying that coffin. But at this time, and in this culture, tombs would have at times multiple occupants. They would carve out this, this entrance into the rock and there would be different shelves or different benches even in the one tomb. So, so there could be multiple occupants in, in a single tomb. And then what would happen is they could even move bodies around. So, so they could take the bones of somebody who'd been in there a little while and they could move them to a different shelf. And the, the most recently deceased person would probably be the closest to the entrance of the tomb. So... Uh, the unused tomb would mean that there's no chance, there's no way that there could be confusion about which body was in there and which body is no longer in there. So 
Luke, again, just giving us a certain sense of, or a sense of certainty, there we go, that Jesus literally, truly died. Now before we get to the, the, the narrative of the resurrection, we should think about this, what is said about Joseph of Arimathea. Amazingly, he was part of the council that condemned Jesus. Right? We said that's most likely the Sanhedrin. He was probably absent from the actual kind of mock trial. We called it a mock trial. They're just looking to accuse Jesus. They're just looking to put Jesus to death. They're not actually putting him on trial. Mark's gospel indicates that that was kind of a unanimous decision to put Jesus to death. So he was probably not there, but we are told that he did not consent with their decision to put Jesus to death. He's described here in Luke chapter 23 as a good and a righteous man. That explains, it, it, that, that explains for us why he would want to care for the body of Jesus. He actually publicly identifies himself here with Christ and going and taking down the body and caring for it. You might say in taking Jesus' body off the cross, Joseph of Arimathea is picking up his own cross and identifying himself with Jesus. Now, John's Gospel lets us know that Nicodemus was also involved here, the same Nicodemus that came to Jesus by night in John chapter 3. He's, he's involved in these proceedings. But imagine Joseph being a member of the council that unanimously condemned Christ. Imagine the pressure that he must have felt as a member of this council. Peter crumbled earlier even as John prayed, like Peter crumbled earlier under less, what would seem to be less pressure. Yet Joseph resisted the manipulation, the coercion of the mob. He, he disagreed with their decision. You know, as we look at this, just kind of a larger picture of what's going on in Luke chapter 23, the righteousness of Christ did not make him popular Right? And the righteous attitudes and actions of Joseph caused him to be opposed to his peers. Right? And you too, at some point, will likely have to choose between what is right, what is godly, what is true, and what is popular. If we're going to follow Christ, if we're going to be followers of Him, we must, we must be willing to bear the scorn of this world. Joseph is not only called good and righteous, but it says he was looking for the kingdom of God. I think this description is actually meant to kind of draw our, our attention and draw our minds back to how the gospel of Luke started. It started with descriptions of faithful men and women who were awaiting the Messiah. There, were, there, there was a faithful remnant who was waiting for the Savior. Zechariah and Elizabeth were called righteous before God, and they walked blameless before Him in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. Remember when, we could talk a lot about Mary too and her example of, of faithfulness, but uh, just consider when, when they went to uh, the temple with Jesus, and we were introduced to a man named Simeon who was righteous and devout, and he was waiting for the consolation of Israel. The consolation of Israel was the coming of the Messiah and the Savior who would establish a kingdom. So Simeon is looking forward to the kingdom of God, much like Joseph. There was a prophetess there named Anna 
And she was speaking to others, the text said, about the redemption of Israel. Well, what's that? Well, that's the coming of the Messiah who would bring a kingdom. While most in Israel, we've seen this, that the, the Jewish leadership was so opposed to Christ. And they, they sort of, in the end, they convinced the, the, the crowd to be against Christ as well. While most saw Jesus as some kind of threat to their own position, or a threat to their own power, or a threat to their own sin, there were those, a faithful remnant, who were looking for the Messiah and His kingdom. And when He came, they heard John the Baptist, and they heard the words of Christ, and they recognized Jesus as the Messiah that John the Baptist was preaching about, was coming. And Joseph of Arimathea is one of these faithful ones, showing himself a friend of Jesus by being willing to care for his body, even after the humiliating, excruciating death that Jesus endured on our behalf. So Jesus literally, truly, physically died. And that's important in, our, in the flow of our text because as I kind of teased earlier, like you can't have a, a, a real resurrection unless you have a real death. It, it's true not only to establish the truth of the resurrection, but as we know and as we've seen over the last couple of weeks if we've studied this narrative, it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary for our salvation. He came to be the sacrificial lamb who would die in our place. Dave did a nice job in Bible Hour last week teasing out the, the sacrificial system and the reality that without the remission of blood, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. It is by his death that we are justified. The wages of sin is death. And Jesus became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. It is through his death that we, we might receive forgiveness. He was crucified, and he yielded up his spirit to the Father. Right? We, didn't, we didn't have time to spend a lot of time on that, but it's, Jesus said, no man takes my life from me. Right? He chose the moment of his own death, yielding up his spirit to the Father, and he died. And we are reconciled to God on the basis of his sacrificial death. You can be certain that Jesus died, and therefore, you can be certain of the saving benefits of the shed blood of Christ, the sort of benefits that we sang about this morning. You can rely fully on Him. But you can also be just as certain that Jesus truly rose again. Look there in verse 54. It was a day of preparation, and the Sabbath was beginning. The women who had come with Him from Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. Then they returned and prepared spices and ointments. On the Sabbath they rested according to the commandment. So Luke, there, at, beginning at verse 54, he kind of turns his attention away from, from the body, the death, uh, Joseph of Arimathea, and he kind of turns his attention to these faithful women who also had ideas in their mind about how they might prepare this body for burial. But he turns his attention to these faithful women who have been following Jesus from his time in Galilee. We've, we've talked about the gospel of Luke and kind of how it's structured geographically and how Jesus begins his ministry in Galilee and he's sort of slowly marching towards his own death in Jerusalem. And then the, the book of Acts sort of takes 
the, the death and the resurrection of Jesus and the message of that. And that message goes from Jer Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of, of the earth. So these women have been with Jesus from the, the time of his ministry in Galilee. He mentions a few of them by name, assuming, you know, we're assuming it's the same women here that go back in, in chapter 24, verse 10. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and, and Luke says there were other women with them. Now, a couple of these overlap with women that were mentioned back in Luke chapter 8. They've been with him. They've become now important eyewitnesses to the events surrounding the resurrection. And we should just remind ourselves, we said some of this back in chapter 8, but we should praise God for these faithful women. Right? Chapter 8 of Luke mentions some of these. They sat under Jesus' teaching. They gave of their own resources. Right? They supported the ministry of Jesus and the ministry of the disciples as they ministered. And Luke, again, he sort of takes this up as a theme. He highlights throughout his gospel the faithfulness of many women. It becomes a theme, and these ladies become the first eyewitness of the resurrection. I think, I think as you read Luke, you know, obviously we understand that the Bible is inspired by God. That's, that's why I trust the Bible, right? That's why you should trust the Bible. But God used means to accomplish his will, and I think. Luke says he relied on eyewitnesses. I think he relied on some of these women. I think he probably interviewed Mary even. I think that's why you get such a greater um, description of Mary's uh, account of the birth of Christ. But these ladies become faithful eyewitness uh, account givers, you could say. First, it says here, they, they saw where Jesus was buried. Now, much of the crowd had dispersed, right? They sort of, many of them went away lamenting. I, I asked John if he would sort of pick up the narrative a little before our text so we had a context there. And he read about many, many of the crowd just kind of went away lamenting, beating their breasts. But these women, these faithful women who had been with Jesus from Galilee, they followed along to see where Jesus was laid down. They saw, it, it says, his tomb and how he was laid there. And that becomes, again, an important detail, meaning that they would not be confused then as they went back the next day. They didn't show up to the wrong place. They didn't look on the wrong shelf. They went to the correct tomb, and there was only supposed to be one body in there, and they actually found zero bodies in there. Like Joseph, these ladies had a desire. They wanted to care for the body of Christ. And so they return home and they begin to pre prepare these spices and these ointments that would could sort of anoint the body of Jesus that would could sort of for a season at least kind of mask the odor of decomposition. Now, as faithful as these ladies were, it's clear by what they're up to right now in our text that they were not expecting the resurrection, right? Even though they should have. And it's clear with what the angel says to them in a minute. They were not expecting the resurrection. So they're getting all these spices and these ointments together, and they really want to care for the body of Jesus. But the Sabbath is here. It's quickly approaching. They cannot get this work done before the Sabbath, and so they have to rest. 
And so chapter 24 opens on early Sunday morning as these women return to the tomb. The tomb they had seen Jesus laid in. And they've brought these spices and ointments to anoint his body. But they find when they get there, chapter 24, verse 1, but on the first day of the week at early dawn, they went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood by them in dazzling apparel. We'll get to their message in a moment. So early Sunday morning, they come back to the tomb. They're going to do what they set out to do with the body of Christ. And the first thing they see is that the stone that was meant to block the entrance of, of the tomb has been rolled away. Now I heard someone say, and I like it, the stone was rolled away not to let Jesus out, but to let the women in so that they can see that Jesus has been uh, resurrected, that he is not there. It was for ease of access to let everyone see that the grave is empty. And when they enter in, that's exactly what they find. There is no body there. There's no body to anoint in the tomb. Now there is a body. There is a body somewhere. That body is now walking around and talking to others, and we'll see what he says later on in chapter 24. Right? He's going to commission his disciples. He's going to challenge his disciples to take the gospel to the nations. So there is a real physical body. Jesus didn't just disappear, but he came back to life. And again, you can be certain that there is a literal physical resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. A, a, a resurrection once for all. An eternal resurrection, never to die again. Now consider the significance of, of, of this claim that, you know, there were lots in Jerusalem, lots of people who wanted to silence the message of these disciples as they began there to preach the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. All they would have to do, all the opponents of Christianity would have to do would be produce the body. Bring the body of Jesus out, and it, it squashes everything. And we're not meeting here this morning, I guarantee it. All they had to do was bring out the body. The Romans could have produced the body. They had guards outside guarding the tomb, ensuring that no one would steal the body. Pilate could have told the guards, hey, go, go get Jesus and bring him out here. This is going to become quite an issue again. We're going to have more riots on our hand if we don't get this thing dealt with. The Jews could have produced the body. Right? They could have threatened Pilate. They've already twisted his arm once. The guy that agreed to crucify Jesus, though he knew he was innocent, I'm sure they could have got him to bring the body out publicly, but there is no dead body. There is no dead body. Notice, I, I, li I like the way Luke writes. He says, he, he mentions the body of the Lord Jesus, right? When they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. It's like he's saying, hint, hint, he's not there because he's Lord. Right? Sometimes when I preach narrative, it's like I try to pretend like we don't all know the end of the story and how, how would you feel if, if you were there and you didn't know the... Well, we know the end of the story. And Luke knows the end of the story. They did not find the body of the Lord 
Jesus. But these women, they don't fully understand yet. It says they are perplexed by the fact that the body is missing. So what does God do? He graciously provides a messenger, two messengers, that might point them to the truth. They're described there in verse 4 as two men. Now, we know that these are actually angels appearing as men. That sort of challenges our assumptions about what angels are and look like, right? They're not little babies playing harps on the clouds. But upon seeing these women, look there in verse 5. These two men are there. It's dazzling apparel. It reminds us, in a sense, of kind of the transfiguration where they saw the glory of the Lord. Now, this is not that, but similar. Just blind, think blinding light from those who have been in the presence of the glory of the Lord and are there doing His bidding and delivering His message. And verse 5 says, And as they were frightened and bowed down their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living among the dead? He is not here, but is risen. Remember how He told you while He was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise. So these, these women fall before, before this radiant uh, light of these men. And what the angels offer here is actually what, what we might call a mild rebuke. Okay, They don't just come down and squash these ladies, but th- these questions are a little bit of a rebuke. Why do you seek the living among the dead? What a question. What a question. They came seeking a dead body. And they're rebuked for doing that. Why do you seek the living among the dead? They're looking, they're rebuked for looking in the tombs for someone who is actually alive. The second rebuke is he is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you. Right? If you have children, you've rebuked your kids that way. Remember when I told you, right? It's a it's sort of a mild rebuke. Jesus had predicted his death by crucifixion and resurrection multiple times in Luke. And apparently, again, these ladies were part of the audience who were told these things, that Jesus will be turned over to sinful men, that he will be crucified, and that he will rise on the third day. And what these women needed now was revelation. Right? They needed divine revelation. They needed the messengers of God to point them to the truth of the words of Jesus. Right, As much as we talk about the importance of eyewitness testimony, our ultimate authority is divine revelation. Right, Our ultimate authority is these angelic messengers relaying the message of the Lord, pointing them back to the very words of Christ. The truth is we have God's Word to point us to truth and interpret all the events surrounding the death and resurrection of Christ. And that's what the angels point back to. That's what the angels say ought to be remembered. They should call to mind. And they should no longer be perplexed because there is no body. Because remember what Jesus said to you. Now I wonder this morning, where do you look for authority? What is your authority on what you believe and think and seek to do? I've talked to many who think they have the the authority to kind of pick and choose what should be accepted and what should be rejected in the Bible, in God's Word. I like 
I like the heaven peace, but I don't like the bloody cross. I like the love of God. I don't like divine judgment or the wrath of God. And they just sort of assume they have the right and even the ability to kind of take what's true and what's not and I'll be the filter and I'll be the arbiter of all truth. The question that I have for myself and for all of us, do you trust yourself? Do you trust yourself to be the arbiter of all truth? I had to buy a special wallet that can hold a special device that tells me where my wallet is at all times. Because one time, I could not find my wallet, and I had thrown it away. I found it in the dumpster when I went to take out the trash the next day. I do not trust myself to be the arbiter of what is true, and what is right, and what is wrong. So where is your authority? Will you trust yourself, or will you trust what God has given us in His Word? Will you you follow the ever-shifting indoctrination of this culture? Man, to be honest, it, it takes great faith to believe that throughout all of human history, how many views and things have changed and how science has changed over time and how we look back and we just laugh at things that used to be settled as true and right. It takes a lot of faith to say that in my 20, 30, 40 years on this earth, we finally arrived at what's true and trustworthy, and I can trust the culture. I can trust what other people are telling me is true. I would encourage some of you younger people to sit down with an older church member, maybe even at potluck, and ask them, what's one thing? What's one thing that you can think of that was just universally accepted as true 60 years ago that we just laugh at today? Here's one. I'll give you one. Many historians for a long time, they said Jesus didn't exist. That was, that was pretty common among like secular atheistic historians. Almost no one says that anymore. Almost no one denies that Jesus of Nazareth existed and taught and died on a cross. It's unanimously accepted that there was a man named Jesus who did this ministry. So what is your authority? The shifting mores of this culture? Can we trust even science alone? Will you trust your gut instinct? Will psychology become the source of what you assume to be true? Same thing. Talk to Dave and Teresa. The psychological truths that were accepted as cold hard facts 50 years ago will get you called a bigot today. Because some of the behaviors that are acceptable today were once called a mental disorder. You cannot accept psychology as your source of truth. We just sort of pick and choose from all these different worldviews and kind of create your own. What we really need and what God has given us is divine revelation. What we need is what God provided for these faithful women. Remember how He told you. Remember how He told you that the Son of Man must be delivered and be crucified and on the third day rise. What we most need is to remember the Word. We need to remember the words of Christ. In fact, as a church, that's what we do when we gather. One thing we do, one thing we always want to do is we want to look back and we want to remember the truths of who God is and who Christ is. 
and that it's the Holy Spirit that has opened our eyes to see these truths. We look back. We're going to take communion in a minute, and it's a way that God has designed for us to look back and to remember the death, burial, and resurrection of Christ, and we proclaim His death till He comes. We need to remember what He's said to us. We need to remember the Word of Christ. What's interesting is that word for tomb there in, in verse 2. It's actually used up in 20, chapter 23 as well. But literally, the word tomb just means a place of remembrance. A place of remembrance. But the, place, the, the burial place of Jesus will not be a memorial. It will not be a shrine to a once great man. Instead, what the angel says to remember is not this, the, the, the life of Christ alone. It's the promise that he made that he would die and rise again. That's what we are called to remember. That's why we aren't afraid as a church to know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. That doesn't mean we don't preach on any other topic. It means everything we think and believe and do is rooted in and grounded in the finished work of Christ. We know nothing among you except Christ and Him crucified. And I love verse 8. It says, And they remembered. And they remembered His words. And I think the, the, the subsequent actions of these ladies show that at, at least the seeds of faith are being born in their heart. I think them going and talking to the apostles indicates that they not only recalled the words, but they're beginning to get a sense of the reality and the truth and the meaning of those words. And so they go and they become the first eyewitnesses to the empty tomb and to the divine revelation that they've been pointed back to by the messengers of God. And when they go and they talk, to the, they, they talk to the apostles and they say, hey, this is what we saw the empty tomb and the angel reminded us of these words and the apostles were like, no, duh. Jesus told us three times he was going to do that. Not really. They actually respond by dismissing it. Right? They call it an idle tale. That word, it means utter nonsense and it's actually used to describe like the, the incoherent ramblings of a person who's so sick, they're not thinking, thinking correctly. So they hear the word. i got to fix that. My stupid watch. Um, so they hear the words. They hear the testimony. And they think it's a fever dream. Right? These are the words of an incoherent babbler. You know, some people have speculated... That, that what, the, what the New Testament writers did is they sort of take this historical figure, Jesus of Nazareth, and they, they do nothing more than make a legend out of him. And they maybe make him greater than he actually was. They make him appear more powerful than he actually was. And I was teaching the 10 to 12-year-olds not too long ago, and we were sort of walking through, why, why should you trust the Bible? And that's why, Dan, I do have this book up here, not for your sake. I, <laughs> I believe you trust the Bible. But if you, if you have... I've, we've got a couple copies of this that you can have if you're wrestling with this question. Can I trust the Bible? Can I trust the Gospels? Can I trust these accounts? This is a book we give away often. You're welcome to take one. Just come and find me after the service. But this book and, and books like these sort of push back on that argument of, of being a legend in a couple ways. One would be this. The Gospels were written way too early to be a legend. There were way too many people still around who knew the truth. 
right? I saw an old, I was playing in an alumni basketball game after I graduated uh, school, and I saw an older, older guy wearing a shirt that says, the older I get, the better I was, right? That's good. The further you get from when people actually saw you play, the more you can kind of say like, yeah, I was pretty good. And there's less and less people around who are like, no, I've seen the evidence. <laughs> right, Bailey? We were playing basketball. Bailey has seen the evidence. Um, the Gospels are written too early to be legends, too close to the actual events to exaggerate the life and ministry and work and promises and death and resurrection of Jesus. Secondly, the, the Gospels are too detailed to be legends. Right? So many details that an eyewitness would include in a story are in this story that a writer of legend would likely leave out. And those details, like who was there, are included for a reason because then others could go and talk to these people and say, is this how it happened? So if you're writing a hoax or a legend, you don't put people in there that could go be interviewed. Third, though, and I think most clearly seen in our text here, the Gospels, and don't you're going to have to hear me out after I say this, the Gospels are too counterproductive to be legends. All right. Don't kill me. Let me explain. I think we see that in a couple ways. First, the women, these faithful women, become the first eyewitnesses to relay what happened to Jesus. Now, in this culture and in this time, a woman's testimony would not have been even considered worthy to be given in a court. So if a person were going to make up a story, if they're going to make up a hoax, it would not have likely included women as the first eyewitnesses. Now I'm just talking about culture. All right. Also, I would suggest this. If you were making it up, you probably wouldn't have what would humanly be called the founders of the movement, the apostles, not even believing the message within 40 days of them actually going going out and preaching this message. So, now there are obviously then lots of good reasons to believe the resurrection of Christ. One thing that the Bible uh, records for us and that history then verifies that these, these feeble men, these men who hid and ran and did not believe that Jesus had risen from the grave, that these men became courageous witnesses to the resurrected Christ and even laid down their lives to proclaim this truth. Right? I know it's God who perseveres our faith, but if you were to ask me, if, if, you know, what keeps you a Christian? I would say I believe in the resurrection of Christ, and the main reason I believe in the resurrection of Christ is that these apostles went and they changed the world. Not through force, not through the sword, but through the preaching of the gospel. And so our third point this morning is that you can be certain that the message of the resurrection transforms lives. You can be certain that the message of the resurrection transforms lives. Verse 9, it says, In returning from the tomb, they told all these things to to the eleven and to all the rest. Now it was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them an idle tale, and they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. 
He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. So Peter hears the report, and, and it, you know, consistent with what we know about Peter, he just takes off running, and he gets to the gospel. You know, the apostle John, we joked, we did, we did John 20, 20 or 21 last year at Easter, but it's just funny to me that John includes the fact that he outran Peter. Um, but what Peter lacks in speed, he makes up for in decisiveness because John gets there and stops. Peter runs right into the tomb and he finds what the women have said is true. He sees the linen cloths that have been laid aside. Again, another way we might have certainty if somebody were to go and rob the grave of Jesus somehow, even though there were guards out there. If someone had robbed the grave of Jesus, they left the one thing, the only thing in the whole grave that would be worth anything, this linen shroud that he was buried in. The women hadn't had time to get there and put the pricey ointments on his body. So he gets there, he sees the linen shroud, and he marvels at what had happened. Now, like, like the ladies, I would say this marveling on Peter's behalf. I don't think it's a full-fledged faith like Jesus has been resurrected, but I think it's, a pro, it's, a, it's an amazement that is the beginning of his understanding. And I think his faith is still weak. I could imagine that when I was talking earlier about producing the body, right? The Jews could produce the body. The Romans could produce the body to shut up the disciples. Um, you know, maybe there were people that were wondering, well, who, who took the body? Right? I, I, I could see somebody pushing back on that, saying, okay, you mentioned the Jews couldn't take, could produce the body. You mentioned the Romans couldn't produce the body. But the disciples could have taken the body. What do you have to say about that? Well, the first thing I would say is more of a joke than anything, but what in the history of these disciples would make you think that they're capable and bold enough and courageous enough to pull off something like that? That's sort of a joke, sort of true. They were far too cowardly to this point, right? But the more decisive evidence is that these same disciples wouldn't have given their lives to promote this lie. The reality is it's easy to be deceived after the fact. right? People blow themselves up in the name of religion. Does that, does that mean that that lends validity to their religion because they were so sold on it, they were willing to die for it? Well, I, it's easy to be deceived after the fact. And people blow themselves up, they drink Kool-Aid, they do things all the time that are just insane. But there's something very powerful in the truth that the disciples knew what was right, real. They were in on the ground level. They knew one way or the other. And we have to make some level of explanation for how, why these men get, gave up everything to go preach Christ and lay down their lives and never renounced His name. What changed the fearful fleeing, doubting disciples into courageous preachers. There's only one explanation, and it's that they saw the resurrected Christ. They saw the resurrected Christ, and they believed. J.C. Ryle says this, the first preachers were men who were convinced in spite of themselves, and in spite of determined, obstinate unwillingness to believe. If the apostles at last believed, the resurrection must be true. 
the message of the resurrection, the, the sight of the resurrected Christ transformed these men and they gave their lives to go preach the gospel. And it changed the course of history. And this simple message, the death and resurrection of Christ, as a substitution in your place for your son and the victorious resurrection, vindicating the perfect finished work of Christ, that message continues to transform lives. I want to wrap up with just three words that should be ringing in your ears in light of this narrative of the resurrection. The first word is hope. The first word is hope. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because of His great mercy, He has given us new birth into a living hope. Into a living hope. How? Through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a living hope because we serve a living Savior. We have been born again through the preaching of the gospel and the application of that gospel by the Spirit to our hearts. And now we not only have hope in this life, but we look forward to eternity with confident expectation of enjoying God's presence forever. In what? Resurrected bodies. Resurrected bodies. A second word would be assurance. Romans 8.34 says this, Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who was raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Who is indeed interceding for us? The resurrection of Christ proves that He has won the forgiveness of sins. That He has conquered. That He was vindicated. That His work was accepted by the Father. The third word then would be power. Romans 6. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So that you also might, must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You've been resurrected with him. His death becomes your death. His resurrection becomes yours. Hope, assurance, and power, all resting on the resurrection of Christ. We're reminded of those words of C.S. Lewis. The one thing the resurrection cannot be is moderately important. The resurrection vindicates Christ. He was brutally, degradingly, publicly executed. But the empty tomb testifies that his death was no accident. It was the plan of God to grant eternal life to all who believe. To provide hope, assurance, and power over sin. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you. Thank you for your work. Thank you for your, the wisdom that's on display in the death and resurrection of Christ. May you be pleased with us even as we partake of communion here. And we seek to look back and remember what Christ has done for us. In Jesus' name, amen.